from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode. We're happy to be with you. Yes. I had an interesting experience just a, a week ago or so, and I know I'm way behind the, the curve here with the culture um, and the big phenomenon over the summer, which was this Barbie movie. Yeah. You've probably heard a good bit about it. Uh, I finally went to see it. Um, my R. Our son. Our son. Not just my son. Like <laughs> you and I have kids together. And in fact, <laughs> that's part of the whole interpretive key of this movie, interestingly enough. Um, I would not just willy-nilly say, go see this movie to anybody. Um, certainly not young people without some parental guidance. But our kind of policy as parents with these kind of movies are, we'll, we'll see it and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so my son, I, our, our son, Isaac, not just my son, our son, Isaac, who's 16, had already seen it once. And I wanted to have an, uh, an educated way to have a conversation with him about it. So I said, why don't we go see it together and we'll have some conversation. And this was Isaac's interpretive key, which I think he's putting his finger on it. I was really impressed with our son and his ability to see this. But the movie starts, if you haven't, don't know anything about it, uh, the movie starts with a, a kind of remake of the 2001 Space Odyssey famous scene. This is a movie from the late 60s. And they show these, you know, primitive um, humanoids, monkey creatures, using bones as a tool and it gets thrown up in the sky and it becomes this spaceship and it's this you know connecting the dots between the original tool used yeah. by a humanoid and how we now can create spaceships but in the barbie version uh, they're they're what they're smashing is not these bones but they're smashing baby dolls these young girls are, are playing with baby dolls and then barbie shows up and they smash the baby dolls and they choose to play with barbie instead and, and which is very disturbing, and some have interpreted it as like a pro-abortion statement. But Isaac, our son, said the key to understanding this Barbie movie mm. is that when you remove babies from the male-female equation, the male-female relationship no longer makes any sense, mm. and, and it leads to chaos. And I thought, huh, I knew there was some thread here because there's this other scene it comes in twice where they show this pregnant barbie in barbie land and and she's dismissed because oh we've discontinued the pregnant barbie Mm. but that itself is a commentary like what happens isaac said this whole thing is about what happens to the male female relationship when you remove fertility and babies when you discontinue the pregnant barbie so to speak what happens to the male female relationship chaos there's no longer a an organizing principle there's no longer a this is the key to understand why we're male and female and when isaac told me that i came out of the movie thinking what was that that was it's trying to say so many different things and 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 i get why lots of Catholic commentators have been very critical of it because it could appear and and maybe even does appear at face value as this pro-crazy gender confusion agenda and radical feminist. But I think there's something deeper going on. The the writers of this movie 
are not just celebrating what's going on in the culture. They're, they're, they wrote this movie to ask questions and to probe more deeply. And you go to Barbie land, which is this total fantasy world where everybody's beautiful. And, and, and there's the scene where they're all partying and dancing. And Barbie says in the midst of all this supposed fun and happiness, she says, you know what? I've been thinking about death lately. And there's this record screech. And that's where the movie shifts and changes when Barbie starts talking about death. And interestingly, she wakes up the next day and she has bad breath and she has cellulite and she's having a deal now with reality and that she has to go to the real world. So anyway, uh, I could go on and on about some of the themes in, in the Barbie movie, but it is a secular attempt, clearly a secular attempt, to try to ask some very important questions as to where the male-female relationship has gone in a world that is pro-contraception and pro-abortion and eliminates babies from the equation. What happens? Well, this movie shows us what happens. Chaos. Chaos. And the movie ends, spoiler alert, the movie ends with Barbie choosing to get out of fantasy world, Barbie world, and go back to the real world. And the first thing she does is she, this is the very end of the movie, she goes to see her gynecologist. And there had been these comments earlier that, you know, Barbie dolls and Ken dolls don't even have genitals. Right. But now she's in the real world and the movie ends with a statement, I'm a woman and I have to deal with my genitals. I have to make sense out of my... Mm-hmm. Real body. My real body. It was intriguing. Mm-hmm. At, at a bare minimum, it's intriguing. There's all kinds of stuff going on in this movie. Um, I wouldn't just dismiss it. I'd say take a deeper look. There's something, even, you know, I, I could critique it on many fronts, and it's hard to walk out of that movie and not think they just make men look like total idiots. Um, and, and it's almost trying to say too much. Like, there's almost too much of a point it's trying to make out of a Barbie movie. But nonetheless, whoever wrote the movie is, is thinking. And I think the woman, Greta somebody, I forget her last name, she was raised a Catholic, um, I don't think she's practicing her faith now, but there's a thoughtfulness to it. They're looking at something. Yeah. And, and I, I should probably stop now or that's going to be the whole episode. But <laughs> I just wanted to share that. It's pertinent to our whole it TOB is. conversation here. It sure is pertinent. Absolutely. Um, maybe just looking at the fact that these dolls don't have bodies that have a, a coherent meaning yeah. and how has that impacted us? Yeah. You know, in in the real world. Yeah. I remember, I mean, you probably remember this, Wendy, as kids taking all the clothes off of Barbie and Ken because yeah. I want to see what's under there. Yeah. And and yeah. It it was weird. And that's part of the point of this movie. What are our genitals for? Uh and and in Barbie land. You know, they discontinue pregnant Barbie because pregnant Barbie makes no sense without genitals, without the male-female <laughs> different. Like, the very idea of Ken and Barbie as plastic figures is, is a kind of gutting of the real truth of being male and female. Mm. And, and the Barbie movie, in its own way, secular way, does explore that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't see the movie, Wendy, but we had some good conversations about it. And, yeah. Um, anyway, I'll stop there. <laughs> well, thank you. I yes. appreciate that. I think that was very. Um, I can see your reflection. I can see Isaac's yeah, reflection. I, 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 re- I told. I said I'd stop. But I'll say one more thing. 
I, I was really impressed that our 16-year-old son pulled that thread out. Uh-huh. Yeah. Good on you, Isaac. Onward. 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 Here we go. Give us an update on the TOB Institute. Uh, yeah, I have a special thing to announce that's okay. going on here at the Institute. We have been working here at the Institute on a new program for middle schoolers right. to introduce them to the theology of the body. Talk about a need. Good Lord. This is when the young people are being particularly bombarded and are particularly vulnerable to the cultural message about our bodies. And Bill Dunahy, my esteemed colleague and dear friend and brother, uh, in this mission here at the Theology of the Body Institute, recently completed filming this new series where we are introducing this integral vision of the human person made male and female in the image of God, all the riches of JP2's Theology of the Body presented in a way that middle schoolers can receive. And this is available through our patron community. So if you are not already part of our patron community and you would like to have access to this program for middle schoolers, please click the link in the show notes to become part of our patron community. And becoming part of our patron community means you are supporting us month to month with anywhere from $10 a month, which is the minimum entry point to whatever you might generously be able to offer us. We have some supporters who offer us $200 plus a month. And Whatever you're able to offer us, man, that goes a long way to enable us to do the work we do. We can't do it without your support. Thank you so much, all you patrons out there and uh, future patrons. So we offer all kinds of programs and benefits for our patrons, and this is the latest one. I ho- I'm, I'm, I'm hoping by the time this episode airs, the middle school program will already be available for the patrons. If you go to your patron membership and find it's not there, uh, don't worry, it will be there soon. I know we're, we're currently editing the program, but I, I'm, I'm guessing it's going to be ready by the time this episode that's airs. Awesome. If it's not, just hold on uh, a week or two and, and it'll coming. be up there. It's right. coming. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Let me give you a question from one of our patrons. Let's do it. This is from Anne. Hello, Anne. Hi, Christopher and Wendy. I absolutely love your podcast. Thank you so much for sharing everything you know about Theology of the Body. I cannot wait to take all the classes at the TUB Institute one day. Right now, I still have little ones at home and a full-time job, so it's difficult to find the time to dedicate to taking classes. Hey, Anne, I'll just throw this out. Okay. Online courses. That's true. It's you true. can watch it at your own pace. Just saying. My question is about my perception of myself as being cool or uncool. Christopher, I've heard you mention this several times on your podcast that you struggled with this this identity as well. Growing up, I always felt different from the other girls around me. My dad was a lot older than my mom, and I was an only child, unlike many of my friends. I liked listening to classical music and Mm. looking at maps and encyclopedias. Fun. I felt like I was an outsider at my private school where most people had a lot of money and seemed like they knew everyone and everything. They had cable and watched MTV, and I didn't. Mm. I couldn't afford the latest fashion trends. I had friends, Mm. but never felt like I fit in with the crowd. Mm. After my years in school, I started to feel more confident in who I was. If people didn't think I was cool, then that was okay. All of that changed when my kids started school. I could feel the panic well up inside me to belong, even worse than when I was in grade school. 
if my kids aren't invited to a birthday party, I look at that as a reflection on me. I find myself scrambling to fit in with the other moms. I pretend that I know things that are going on or that I'm in the know. Sometimes I say to myself, it doesn't matter. I'm an adult now. I'm a beloved daughter of God. But it is like the little kid inside me is screaming, I want to be seen as cool. I'm trying to figure out why it's so important for people like me to feel they're cool. And why did this feeling seem to go away in my 20s and early 30s, but came back with a vengeance when my kids started school? Oh, Anne. Anne, I love you, dear sister. Bless you. (laughs) Oh, man. Um... Wow, can we just all die and go to heaven? <laughs> that's right. Because <laughs> that's when we're finally going to know that we're loved. We're loved as we are. The whole, you and I, Wendy, can talk to this whole mm-hmm. cool wound. Yeah. I, I, oh gosh, where do we even, oh man. <laughs> I remember, I'll just tell this story. I remember, you remember it too, Wendy, because yeah. it's really painful. When you and I were falling in love, we were sharing our lives with each other, sharing pictures of our childhood. And I remember you showed me some pictures when you were a girl. And, and my heart was kind of arrested. And there was like, a, oh, oh, mercy. Oh, crap. Oh, pain. And, and like a shock to my system because I realized in seeing these pictures of you as a girl, if you and I had been in school together, you grew up in Maryland, I grew up in Pennsylvania, so we didn't know each other. But if we had been in school together, I never would have invited you to my eighth grade party because you weren't, quote, cool enough. Brutal, 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 brutal. I remember at that time, just like a lot of, it was a gift for us in a way to kind of look at, you know, what is, what are the lies that we've believed and, you know, it was, it was an opportunity for honest conversations and, you know, here you are clearly in love with me. You want to marry me. So how do you make sense of that story from, you know, at that point we're only... I don't know. I can't do math quickly in my head, but not that many years removed from having had that. Yeah, kind I was of twenty-five. Thinking. You were twenty-two. Mm-hmm. So we're what ten years out from all of those yeah. dynamics. Mm-hmm. But it was. It was. You're right. It was an opportunity. The lights got turned on on lies that we believed, and especially I believed, but you were also prone to. But you you had come sooner in your life, I think, through a a. a a deeper maturity and a deeper relationship with Jesus that you had in your teen years. I certainly didn't have that in my teen years. Mm -hmm. You had come to terms with all that cool, uncool stuff. Not that you were perfectly resolved in it all. Nobody ever is. And and, Anne, bless you, dear sister, bless you. I mean, why is it coming back now? Why was it not such an issue in your 20s? I think it wasn't such an issue in your 20s because you were coming into a maturity. You're coming into a sense of yourself. You were, you were realizing you're a person with your own gifts, your own shortcomings, and you were probably in those years getting married, and you had a man who loved you, and you had a sense of yourself, and you're realizing that's just crap. That was just, those were, that was just bullshit. 
yeah, it's bullshit. Sorry, it was just bullshit <laughs> from 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 lies from from the way kids are so cruel and 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 you had a sense of yourself, but now it's coming back because you have kids, mm-hmm. and they're they're facing all these same struggles, and that that those places that are unresolved, we kind of get frozen. Those those childhood memories, those childhood wounds, those childhood, it's really a rejection wound. It's what it is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, a, a deep fear that I'm not lovable. Substitute the word cool, remove that word. And, and what you're really saying is I want to be, when you say I want to be cool, you're saying I want to be lovable. I want to be accepted. I want to be seen. I want to be known. I want to be affirmed. I want to be loved. That's the, it's the deepest, most fundamental desire of the heart. And I believe it's coming back now, and because in all of us, we get into our adult years, and for me, it was my 30s too, mm-hmm. when I had to start taking a deeper look at these lies that I had believed as a child. It was wounds in our marriage that I saw, mm-hmm. pain I was causing you, Wendy, despite my best effort to want to love you and, and see you and honor right. you. There's a lot of pain that was coming out. And can I just say something to that, that there was a stage of healing that went on during our engagement from how that came up. And then there were things that came up years later where, yeah, they're so subtle. But when you're attuned to like deeper things, as Anne obviously is, you start to notice, wait, what are these dynamics inside me that are coming out almost without me? Thinking ahead, you know, that description she said of kind of pretending to be in the know. Like, one doesn't set out like, okay, here's my strategy. I'm going to plan to pretend to be in the know. No, you just, it's a panic reaction, but it it causes you to say, well, what's behind that? Why why am I pretending something? Well, we had similar things come up later in, you know, in our marriage, in our relationship where we said, well, why this? Why are we, you know, and it took both of us praying and reflecting and talking to our spiritual directors to to take these same questions deeper and, and find deeper healing for both of us. Yeah, yeah. And we came to discover, not that when I say came to discover, it's not like we've discovered this oh, truth and now we're perfect we're and now we're set free. <laughs> no, 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 no. We, we, we have through ongoing journeying and we're still on that journey and there's still more to grow through but we have come to see there is a monstrous lie that we have believed it is a lie i mean as all lies are but this this lie is from the from hell from the very pit of hell and it's the lie that was the original sin uh, it was the lie that we believe that led us to the original sin that you're not loved you're not loved. You have to win it. You have to earn it. You have to prove it. You have to grasp at it. You're not loved. You're not chosen. You're not desirable. And that gets reinforced when, when all we have is a kind of horizontal experience. And by horizontal experience, I mean we're, we're judging reality based on what's going on in this world. Well, guess what? Everybody else that we are interacting with has believed that same monstrous lie And when you have 8 billion people on a planet who have believed the monstrous lie from the pit of hell that I am not lovable, I am am not only not loved, I'm not lovable, well, then life becomes this striving 
to get on top, to prove that I'm better, to prove that I'm lovable. It becomes one big game of king of the mountain. Call it whatever you want, cool or uncool, king of the mountain, or those on top, those on bottom, uh, the class system of the the superior aristocrats and the the subhuman working class, or whatever you, however you divide it, that whole structure is is a human striving in our fallen condition to try to prove to ourselves and to others that I'm worthy, that I'm desirable, that I'm cooler, that I'm better, that I'm richer, that I'm prettier than you. I'm on top, you're on the bottom, and and the the monstrous lie is that there are two categories, lovable and unlovable, cool and uncool, uh, desirable and undesirable, pretty and ugly, or however, what, however you shape it up, whatever words you use. And it's a lie. There are not two columns. If you exist, you are chosen. You are wanted. You are desirable. You are loved. You are elected. You have been chosen. How do I know this? Because you exist, that's how I know this. Now, it's one thing to say, I know that. It's another thing to look at the, the as I say it, I have this image of these like tentacles with spikes on them that just stretch out into the deep regions of our inner being and they, they, they wreak havoc. And, and I've been trying in earnest for a large majority, majority of my adult life to go on the archaeological dig that is required in the interior journey to uproot these, these spiky tentacles uh, of the lies and how they've wreaked havoc in my life. And I can get discouraged. My spiritual director was just talking with me this last time I saw him a month ago. He was saying, Christopher, you, you think the interior journey is like some carna- carnival game that's rigged against you. You know, you see that big stuffed animal that is held out as the prize if you win this game, and and one out of a million people ever win the game and get the bear. Um, in fact, really, nobody gets it. And you think that's the interior journey because you keep digging and digging, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more, and you get discouraged. And he kept trying to say to me, it's not rigged against you, but what you're realizing is how deep the lies go but here's the good news. Here's the good news. The truth goes far deeper. It's a, it's a testimony to and, and the, the depth of those lies that you've believed, which are kind of coming back to haunt you right now in your 30s because you have your own kids and your own inner child is getting tapped by what your own real children are going through. Uh, yeah, those lies go deep, but the truth goes deeper. And your, your heart is this mysterious abyss of, of, of yearning, of desiring to know your goodness, and the enemy has wreaked havoc in there. But for such a, a, a reason as this, has Christ come into the world to save us from the lies of the enemy? And that salvation is real, and that salvation goes deeper, deeper, deeper. This is a moment of grace, Anne to see how your own children facing the same lies that you faced as a girl, to see how they, to, to, to see how w- what they're going through is now triggering those memories, triggering those wounded places. This is a moment of grace. This is the Lord kind of knocking on the door of your heart and saying, it's time for us to look at these things together. 
come to me, Anne, he's saying, come to me where you are burdened, where you, where you are not at rest, and let me give you rest. Let me, let me carry your burdens with you. Let me carry your burdens for you. Let me care for you. Cast your anxieties on the Lord, St. Peter says in one of his letters. Cast your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. And he knows intimately every single sad memory in your heart of when there was some slight from a neighbor, from a, from a, uh, a school person, uh, you know, a teacher, uh, uh, an older kid down the block, a, a fellow student, a, a glance that made you feel unrecognized or unloved or unlovable, a comment, a rejection, somebody bullying you, you didn't get invited to the birthday party or you did get invited to the birthday party, but you were in the corner because you didn't fit in, or you made a mistake in sports, or you weren't chosen during gym class first, or you were the last person to be chosen to play uh, dodgeball or whatever the situation may be. All those great multitude of lies that, that come against us, that you're not lovable, you're not chosen, you're not wanted, you're not cool. Oh man, what a litany we could all go through. And guess what? The cool kids... They're just as worried and insecure as everybody else. How do I know that? Because I, I strove to be one of those cool kids because I was scared to death underneath that I wasn't lovable. And the way you try to convince yourself that you are lovable, that you are cool, is by drawing the line as to what is cool and what's not, and then becoming the arbiter and saying, you're not cool enough to come to my eighth grade party. I had this eighth grade party in 1983 in which I was the sole arbiter of coolness, and you have to be a certain level of cool for me to invite you. And in my adult life, I have, I have wept at the thought of the people I didn't invite and the arbitrariness and the rejection of their souls that that, that message sent. And I've even looked up some of them as much as I've been able and apologized, you know, 20, 30 years later for, for that crap in me. I could weep right now when I th- I could go right I can I remember these people I remember their names I remember their faces I remember why I rejected them and it all came from my own deep deep insecurity and not believing I was lovable. I think that's so helpful all of what you're saying but especially that comment about the interior of those on the on the other side of that sort of arbitrary line. I think that's very helpful for anyone praying through these things to to understand that, um, at least to some degree. I do see, and I agree, is that a, a moment of grace? It's painful. Yeah. It's digging up pain and it's amplifying the pain almost. Yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. it's sort of like concentrated yeah, and intensified. And aggravating it. Yeah. But the the areas that the Lord may take this for healing are so many yes. because there's there's your appreciation of your own story that um, is unique that needs to be healed, that sense of the gift of your parents and the Lord's plan in giving you your story, your family um, also, which always has good and bad. So does the school you went to and the people you knew there and a certain appreciation of the uniqueness of each of your children and their journey. So all of that, like the Lord can take this in many directions. Um, I do think that experience specifically that Anne shared about um, 
you know, pretending to be in the know. Mm. Like, I don't know why that struck me in a particular mm -hmm. way as like a window into some of the, the fears and anxieties that are left over from the past and right. coming up into her present. Something just from Theology of the Body that's really coming to my mind, and whether it's useful to Anne or to other listeners, I'll just share this, that Christopher, you will know where JP2 reflected on that moment of meeting between Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. And the Pope retells the story of Adam saying, this one at last, mm -hmm. when oh. he sees Eve, and just reflects on some of the sentiment that those words are expressing towards the gift of the other. I was thinking about that and how this is the first bride and groom that mm -hmm. we see in scripture, but but we know that that Christ is the new Adam. Amen. That in some way we are the bride. So if we would reflect on that story and see hear Christ saying to each of us, oh. this one at last, with oh, that utter man. Utter acceptance and delight in the gift. Glory! Like that, that is a very uh, like deep need that we have, and that's why the Lord has spoken of that to us. And so I, I just would say, hold that out as a possibility for our reflection and prayer as we are seeking to know that we are gift, that we are loved. Wendy, you, you're, you're. You're entering right right into it. As you were sharing that, I was already a, like a couple steps ahead. I think, is she going this way? Is it, I hope she goes this way. And you did. You did. You did. Because I was sensing the very same thing in my heart. Each and every time a sperm meets an egg in the womb, guided by the very hand of God, there is Christ saying, at last, you are the one. You are the one. And he's saying that to you. And you are the one. You are the one. This is what JP2 means when he says the human being, each human being is unrepeatable. JP2 says right in that same section, reflecting on Adam and Eve, JP2 says we are chosen by eternal love to be in an unrepeatable relationship of love with the living God. And our prayer for you and for all our listeners is that you would know, Anne, and every one of our listeners would know those words. And my prayer for me and for you, Wendy, is we would know, we would hear, you are the one. I have chosen you. I have chosen you. You are chosen by eternal love. You are desired. And I believe the Lord's going to take you on a really beautiful journey here into these wounds where the enemy's voice working through other fallen human beings, the enemy's voice has said to you, you're not the one. I don't want you. You're not lovable. I don't choose you. You're not worthy of being chosen. Those lies come from the pit of hell. And we have the authority through our baptism to say, in the name of Jesus Christ and with the authority of my baptism, I renounce and I rebuke those lies from the pit of hell. We can renounce them, we can rebuke them, and we can rest in that place. You are the one. And you are the one. I can't wait, Anne for the communion of saints, when we will all together rejoice in the beam of glory that you reveal, that no one else yes, reveals. Anne. Thank you, Anne, for opening your hearts to us. Thanks for sharing this, this mystery of your heart, which, which I'm going to quote from my friend Dr. Bob Schutz here. He, he says, your story is your glory, right? That story of pain and rejection will become a story of glory and redemption. 
Praise God for that. Yes. Amen. Our next question then yes. is from an anonymous listener. Just okay. Keep moving because I know I've got more to cover. Yeah. Listen, <laughs> that was deep. Yeah, that, that was. was. Deep. <laughs> Man. Bless you, Anne. Thank you. Thank yes. you. Thank you, Anne. Okay. Can't wait to know you in heaven, Anne. Here we go. Anonymous listener. My wife and I celebrate our 25th anniversary this year. Congratulations. She is premenopausal now. Can relate. We know this territory. <laughs> In all these years, we have been able to be sexually intimate with each other. But at my age now, it's difficult to keep and maintain an erection. We want to be able to experience lasting lovemaking. She's urging me to seek a solution to my issue, but I hesitate because I think it will change the dynamic in the bedroom and mm. set expectations for both of us. Mm. Do you have any advice for this situation? Brother, thank you. Thank you for just being so honest and real. Thank you. Thank you. We're, we're going through similar recognition of aging and how that changes the dynamics of our marital union. This is familiar territory to us. Uh, yeah, there are changes that happen. Um, let, me, let me just point to the two kind of uh, extremes or the two two guide rails that we don't want to go beyond these guide rails on either side, right? One would be this idea that Viagra, for example, is immoral. That's not true. That's not true, right? We get in this mindset, oh, the pill is wrong. Uh, well, here's a man taking a pill for some sexual reason. Well, that's probably wrong too. There's nothing wrong with pills when we take pills to rectify ills. I just came up with that right now. I'm a poet. I heard that. I we were, I was present in the moment yeah. of that inspiration. How about that? There's, we do nothing wrong when we take pills to rectify ills. But here's the thing. Fertility is not an ill, right? If you take a pill to nullify your fertility, you're taking a pill to make yourself ill. Pills are meant to rectify ills. Pills are not meant to create ills. When we take the pill, when a woman takes a pill to render herself sterile, she's working in the wrong direction, right? We know that God designed a man's body to be able to perform the marital act. If there's some defect there that a pill could rectify, we're working in the right direction. So one guardrail on one side of the road is there's nothing wrong inherently with Viagra. Don't go over the rail and say, well, that would be immoral. I can't go there, right? That would be a crossing of the boundary that would keep you on the right road. The other guardrail on the other side of the road would be, oh, let's just pop the pill right away to solve the problem. That's not a good approach to take either. And I do think you are already recognizing that. You're recognizing that just to think a pill is going to solve our problem is not the right approach because as you recognized, it, that would change a dynamic in our lovemaking. That would that could just, there's a rhythm after 25 years of marriage, how many, you know, do the math of how many times a couple has made love over 25 years. And, and that's a lot. That's a rhythm. You've entered into a certain rhythm in your affection. You've entered into a certain rhythm and knowledge of one another's bodies and hearts and minds and souls. And, and, and to, to insert a pill without an intelligent, thoughtful, uh, recognition of a new dynamic that could change things would not be right. And you're already aware of that. I'm of the mind that 
the, the difficulty here calls for a deepened tenderness, a deepened awareness, uh, a recognition that it might take more time than we're used to making room for in our lives for lovemaking. It might involve deeper levels of conversation and communication. If all of that is happening and you come to the conclusion that some medical assistance here to maintain an erection to enable you to complete the marital act could be, might be, would be helpful, then I would say in the context of deeper communication, in the context of deeper tenderness, in the context of all of that thoughtful communication, it it would be possible to experience using that medical assistance in a way that wouldn't be just an eradicating of the rhythm of your lovemaking that you've come to know, but it could be incorporated in such a way that enabled the completion of your union with the proper tenderness, communication, and thoughtfulness. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that. I just, I sense that one of the things that can be hard when there's a disagreement is a certain kind of standing your ground, a certain feeling, a need to like, no, this is my experience. I, I, I need to defend my position that kind of limits your entering into the perspective of the other, right, maybe right. feeling a little threatened, like I'm being disregarded, I'm not being considered, so I have to, you know, stay, you know, just kind of dedicated to my uh, opinion on this or something. And I, what I could see as being really fruitful and not necessarily easy, could take saying, we need to pray together about this. Let's set aside time to talk about this, all of which is not easy. Yeah, yeah, not easy. Uh, but but could be really important. It could lead to deeper understanding of one another, not just related to this issue, but your whole yes. temperaments. Yes. Your history could involve asking forgiveness for some wounds that were caused in the past, whether you were aware of it or not. So like this, this could take time yes. and it could take courage and a lot of grace. But I do think that sense of answering this question, medication or not, is going to be most fruitful for your relationship if both of you have a greater understanding of the other's experience and personhood and gift that create the tension and the disagreement in the first place. Like, on the other side of all this, what I just see is needed, like this prayer and communication that enables you as the husband to understand your wife better, that enables her to understand you better, that it may take you on a journey that that this whole question is, you know, not even what you end up looking for an answer to. Right. I don't know. Right. But um, at any rate, that's just my little added two cents about that. I, I had a little insight, Wendy, when you were talking that I think is worth adding uh-huh. here. And it just, it was like a prick in my own heart, like, a, oh, I think I know what might be underlying this mm. from the male perspective, uh, because I've experienced it myself. I'm, I'm soon to turn 54. I am not in my 20s anymore. My body doesn't respond as it used to respond. And there is a, there is a, there is a need for the man to know in that vulnerable place, and 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's vulnerable. Vulnerable. The word vulnus means wound, and vulnerable means ability to be wounded. Think about it. In God's design, right, for the old covenant, he wanted men to know your penis makes you vulnerable. Right? Circumcision, right? What is the, oh my lord. The, 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 the call of the man in the marital embrace is to learn to love as Christ loves. How does Christ love? With total vulnerability, total, able to be wounded. What is the crucifix? Able to be wounded, vulnerable. Oh my, he made himself ultimately vulnerable and he did so precisely as a bridegroom. And his cross, his passion, this is the marriage bed. This is where Christ says to his bride, this is my body given up for you. And the man in that place of vulnerability, right? Getting older now. I can't maintain my erection like I used to when I was in my 20s and 30s. He needs to know that he is loved right there. And I don't have to take a pill to be lovable. Viagra, you know, is a a new invention, right? For all of human history up to the modern times, there was no pill to take to solve this problem. And the husband and the wife had to, had to work through all of the issues that are presented. And what's really underneath it, I'm utterly convinced in the man's heart is, am I still lovable? Am I, can you love me here in my weakness? And men hate weakness. We're so afraid of weakness. And, and uh, uh, an inability to maintain erection to a man is a sign I'm weak. I'm no longer virile. I no longer have that youthful masculine power and strength. Oh my gosh, all my weaknesses now are on display. It's embodied right here. Am I seen? Am I known? Am I lovable here? Yes, 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 yes. And every um, man needs to know he's loved perfectly by a perfect woman. And there's only one woman who can do that. And that's Mary. Wendy, you, you, you take your interior life seriously and you are growing in perfection, but you're not a perfect woman. And, and there are places in my heart that I, I have to still and always will say, Mary, I need a perfect woman right here to love me here. And uh, Wendy, you're awesome. You're awesome, but you're not perfect. Um, <laughs> and it's, I mean, you know that, obviously. We, yes. we know this. We, this is part of our lives. I'm not a perfect husband. You need a perfect husband. You need a man who's perfect to love you perfectly. That's Jesus. And I, I want to be like Jesus. I'm striving to be like Jesus. I'm letting his grace into my heart day to day to become more and more like Jesus. But there, you have to take your heart, Wendy, to Jesus to receive the perfect love that you're made for from a man. And I need to take my heart to Mary to receive the perfect love I'm made for from a woman. That's just the way it is. So, brother, I, I invite you on that journey to open up those insecure places in your heart to know you're loved. Uh, right here, right here. And I pray your wife is able to show you that love. And I pray where your wife's imperfections don't reach you there, that you're able to learn how to take all your vulnerabilities to the Blessed Mother. She's not ashamed of anything. She's not afraid of your body. She's immaculate. She has no issues. She has no body issues. She has no hangups. She's naked without shame. She's the new Eve. We are not naked without shame, but she is. She knows how to live. And by that, I mean she knows how to live perfectly an integrated understanding of God's plan for the body. And she can teach us that way too. And she can love you in those vulnerable places, brother. And I'm sure there are people out there rolling their eyes right now. What? Bring my limp penis to the blessed mother? What are you talking about? Um, and I... <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, right. 
What I'm saying is there is nothing that human beings experience that Jesus and Mary are afraid of or ashamed of or can't help us with. And if we think there are issues they can't help us with because it has to do with our genitals, well, then we're projecting our own uh, fearful, messed up stuff onto them. And this is the whole point that Mary is immaculate and, and Jesus is without sin. They both are without sin. It's that they know the whole picture. And they're not afraid of any of it. They're not ashamed of any, and they can bring us into the fullness of our humanity. And you can't abstract your genitals and your sexual being from the fullness of your humanity. In fact, your sexuality expresses the fullness of your humanity. So bring it, bring it to the ones who are fully whole as male and female. That's Jesus and Mary. Mm. I'm sure there's still people out there rolling their eyes at me. <laughs> but I have to leave it at that for now in this context. <laughs> well, based on the first question, we're not going to be troubled about people rolling their eyes at you, okay? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to bring it together. Next question is from Jordan. Jordan. Hello, Jordan. Hi, Christopher and Wendy, podcast makers. I am, I think that's in contrast to the con- podcast listeners. Oh, oh we're the podcast yeah, I get it makers. Okay, That's good, yeah, Jordan. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. I'm 25, living with two other wonderful Catholic women and striving to follow theology of the body in my dating relationship and relationships with all I encounter. Pause. Did did he just say he's... he's... This is a she. Oh, this is a she. Jordan. Ah, that's where I got it mixed up. Yeah, that's I was thinking Jordan was a guy and he's claiming he's living living with two beautiful women. Okay. Okay. I just wondered, where's this going? Right, now I'm on same page. Jordan is a woman. Yep. Got it. Okay. Something recently came up in conversation which gave my housemates and me troubled consciences. One of my housemates works for a Christian adoption agency, and it has a program called Snowflake Adoption. This is where embryos who were conceived for IVF purposes and are not going to be allowed to further develop by the conceiving couples therefore would otherwise remain in a freezer for the remainder of their life, can be adopted by couples desiring children of their own. This then leads to the adoptive mother being surgically implanted with the chosen embryo and carrying that life. While I can see how this program would be potentially good in the sense that those children who would stay in a freezer until likely being destroyed would have a chance at life, I can't help but be a bit troubled at the thought of the couple's Adopted child being implanted in the prospective mother rather than being conceived through the marital embrace. I'd love your thoughts here. Bless you, Jordan. Bless you. Bless you. I, I want to affirm exactly what you said. There's something beautiful here and there's something troubling here. And, and we have to remain in that tension and not pretend otherwise. We can't just pretend this is all beautiful. Nor can we uh, go on the other side and just say this is this is the the desire to adopt those embryos and and give them a chance at life is all is all bad. There's something so good there, uh, but there is something inevitably troubling that remains. Um, we've we've addressed this at least once. I do, yeah, I do think it's in come a up previous before in a previous episode, question, but yeah. m- not quite from this angle where mm-hmm. where Jordan's coming from. And who knows? I can't remember what episode it would be. But um, yeah, I'll just say from the Catholic perspective, from the church's perspective, there has been no statement by the magisterium one way or the other on this issue. And good Catholics 
can disagree on the, the proper approach here. I remember when this first became a medical possibility, I was reading a lot of articles on it because I just try to stay you know, up to date and abreast as to what's going on in the world. And I remember reading this article from a moral theologian that I respected who said, it seems we finally put ourselves in such a dilemma morally from all these other bad moral choices, yeah. meaning the, the, the very conception of these embryos in vitro is already a bad moral choice. We've already missed the mark here. And, and that comes from a whole set of ideas that are missing the mark in the way we practice medicine and the way we understand our bodies and our fertility. All these, this, this tragedy of error, he says, has finally led us to a place where we have a moral dilemma that cannot be solved. Because one of the arguments is, and I, I understand it, and I, I, I sense it, and, I, and it's part of my inner being agrees with it. When a man and a woman become husband and wife, they are committing only to have a, a child through, uh, you know, only to bring a child into this world through their own love and union. The bottom line is, my, if, if you and I, Wendy, did this, if, you, if we adopted an embryo mm -hmm. and implanted it in your womb, bottom line is you are now carrying in your womb somebody else's baby. Mm -hmm. That's messed up. We can't pretend that's not messed up. That is messed up. At the same time, those are real human lives in those freezers. And the fact that they're going to be destroyed is messed up. Can't we, can't we then rescue them and implant them in a loving, couple's um, a loving mother's womb and a, a loving father who could then raise this child? Okay, there's something heroic and beautiful there, but there's still something messed up. And again, this moral theologian says, it seems we have gotten ourselves in a moral dilemma here that cannot be solved. So, Jordan, you're right. There's something beautiful and heroic, and there's something really messed up. And we have to remain in that tension and not pretend otherwise. What would you say in Jordan's case? She's living with someone who maybe is wondering, should I be a part of this or not, you know, that kind of thing. There are well-meaning, well-informed, well-educated, faithful Catholics who come down on, on both sides. And, and I, I can see the points on both sides. Yeah. And so I'm trying to, myself, I don't want to even say definitively yeah. one way or the other, because I'm just trying to remain in the tension. Mm -hmm. And I can understand those couples. We, we know a couple, beautiful couple close to us mm -hmm. who chose to adopt uh, uh, an embryo and implanted it. Uh, the child only lived a short time. They were able to baptize that child. Thanks be to God. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something beautiful there. There's something I bless and affirm there. And a deep love they had. A deep love they had there for each other and for that real human life. Mm -hmm. And there remains something really amiss right. at the same time. And there's no reconciling it. There's no coming to a, a completely smooth, completely conscience, utterly at peace resolution. There's just not. So I, I'm not, I am going to refrain even yeah. from trying to say there's, there's yeah. one right answer. There, you just have to stay in that tension right? And, and offer the tension itself as intercession. And I will say, high five, I bless you, I back anybody who out of a heroic motivation would adopt that embryo. And at the same time, I bless and affirm anybody who would say, 
I, I, I can't carry somebody else's baby. I'm not made for that. I'm not designed for that. There's something so amiss about that. I, I'm not going to do that. I would bless and affirm that decision, and I would bless and affirm the other one. Staying in the tension of, 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 of it. Yeah. I think in, in the case of Jordan's question, I, I sense her kind of, there's a sensitivity, I guess, um, to, yeah, the tension you're talking about where you're seeing, well, that seems like a good that rescuing these children, and I don't know from Jordan's question whether she was even aware that that the the church had a, the, hadn't the hadn't teaching, said anything. Well, no, even that the in vitro fertilization in the first place was oh, wrong. Oh, she doesn't sure. say that. Right. Um, so you know that may be you know a whole other thing for her. You know, like maybe her conscience was pricked because she needs to reflect more on what are the moral teachings about conception and, yes, and yes, yes. life and all that. Should I speak to that just briefly? Um, sure. Yeah, just briefly. And I, I refer people to my book, Good News About Sex yes. and Marriage. I have a whole chapter on this. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the brief nutshell answer is, if medicine and technology can aid the marital embrace in conceiving a new life, it's good. Again, because we're working in the right direction. It's that same principle of the pill. Mm-hmm. Am I taking a pill to solve an ill? Or am I taking a pill to cause an ill, right? Is medicine and technology being used to aid what God intends to be the means by which a child is conceived? Mm -hmm. The only means God ever intends for a child to come into the world is the marital embrace. We know children come into the world through all kinds of other situations, acts of adultery, acts of premarital sex, acts of incest. Acts of in vitro fertilization, acts of artificial insemination. Children can come into being through all these things. It was never God's intention. Does God still love and bless those children? Absolutely, he does. Uh, but it's, it remains an injustice to that child mm. that that child came into the world by a means other than the loving embrace of a husband and a wife. If medicine and technology replaces the marital act as the means by which that child comes into the world, that's acting outside of God's intention and is not acceptable. So that's the short answer. I'd, I, again, urge anybody who yeah. wants to learn more to read Good News About Sex and Marriage. I think that's great. Yeah. Thank you, my love. It, it really, this question really does point to the complexity of the times we are living in. Yeah. And I just want to invite everybody to realize that there are real answers to these complexities. We do, every once in a while, find such a complex situation that maybe there's not an answer for it. But even the ability to recognize there's no answer for a, a complex question like this demonstrates that there is a vision of what it means to be human that, that gives us answers, that shows us the true path of human life, and that's the gift of John Paul II's Theology of the Body. We hope you've been blessed by our thoughts and reflections today. Uh, We ask you that if you know anybody who you think could benefit, could you please hit that share button to to spread the love and to spread this good news? We'd be grateful to you. Mm -hmm. Until next time, please know it in your mind, in your heart, in your body, in your bones. And I'm passing it to you this time, Wendy. You are a gift. Yeah, you are. Become what you are. Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. 
If you're going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.